0: I'm Alison Chantel, and I had a great conversation last week with three of the most impressive journalists whose reporting has led to a national reckoning on sexual harassment. Jody Kanner is one of two New York Times reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story wide open.
2: It was the moment when we said as an organization, how many of these stories are out there that are like this? How many other women have been quieted?
0: Erin Carmon told the story of Charlie Rose's alleged victims. And over at The Hollywood Reporter, Kim Masters has been uncovering alleged harassment for years. Most recently, her stories include Pixar's John Lasseter and Amazon Studios boss Roy Price. This is a special edition of Success How I Did It from Business Insider, and my conversation with these journalists was recorded at our annual Ignition conference. Kim started off by telling me about a time in the late 1980s when she actually said to Harvey Weinstein's face, I heard you rape women.
3: It was the first time I met Harvey. It was a lunch in Beverly Hills. I had written stuff about him that he didn't like. He came rushing up to the table. It was the first time I'd met him face to face, and he's yelling very aggressive, why do you write this about me? What do you write this about me? What have you heard about me? And I felt like, you know, I have to do it right now. And I said, I've heard you rape women. And I thought I'd never be able to tell that story, of course. It was an off-the-record lunch, so I've never said exactly how he answered, but I will say, if not an outraged denial. It was a, really a, quite a feeling to think, oh, my God, and know going forward that periodically we would try again, try again, try again. So it took until these guys and Ronan Farrow finally broke the door down, but... By then I was happy that anybody was doing it. Roy Price, I had a source come to me, and I, I feel like it's important to say this because of, you know, there's been all of this thing about men treating women. But the original sources on that were men who were very disgusted by this behavior. So I heard about it. I had, as you said, a very difficult time. And Lassiter, you know, once the Harvey story broke, I got a call about Lassiter. And I have to say that was the one where I thought. Can I just not hear this? Like, it was so big and it was Pixar and Disney animation. And I will admit, I didn't like dive for it, but I knew eventually that it was real and we had to go forward.
0: And Jody, you've said, you know, you knew this, there was a graveyard almost of reporters that had tried to do this Harvey Weinstein story and had not been able to get enough to publish. So, when did you know that this was a real story that you were going to try and tackle, and why now? Why do you think that this happened now?
2: Well, the strange thing about the Harvey story is that it kind of entered popular culture. So, on the one hand, at the Oscar nominations in 2013, the comedian Seth MacFarlane made a joke about it. He announced the five actresses' names.
1: Congratulations, you five ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein. <laughs>
2: So on the one hand, it was discussed like that, but there had never been a kind of real story documenting the allegations. Nothing had ever been nailed down. So it was pretty intimidating, but the way we came into it is that the Times made a huge commitment to sexual harassment reporting this year. I know this sounds like a very long time ago, but it actually wasn't. My colleagues Emily Steele and Michael Schmidt broke open the Bill O'Reilly story about the payments he had made to women over the years to quiet these allegations. And internally, their project was obviously very important in terms of the impact it made in the world, but it was important internally at the times too, because it was really a wake-up call for us. And it was the moment when we said as an organization. How many of these stories are out there that are like this? How many other women have been quieted? We knew that sexual harassment existed, of course, but what really became clear is that the kind of mechanisms of silencing and cover-up might be far more vast and elaborate than anybody had realized. And it was also a point when we said, this is our duty as investigative reporters because we're in a unique position. I mean, I love your story about what you said to Harvey because to me it speaks to the social license that journalists have. I mean, your kind of superpower is that you could actually go up to him at a party and confront him about that, which most people can't. And so we said, let's try to put the puzzle pieces together. Let's try to see if there is a pattern here. And that's when we started looking at the Harvey story.
0: And Erin, you had heard about Charlie Rose. I I think the story came together pretty quickly, it sounds like, 17 days or something. Yeah,
1: it was an unusual trajectory, and I've said that it also stands on the shoulders of some of the reporting that was done, including by the women on this stage and by Ronan Farrow. I first became aware of the story in 2010 when I was a reporter at Jezebel. And at the time, it was two women, one a job applicant, one an assistant, uh, who had been sexually harassed, allegedly, by Charlie. And it was so, you know, people talk about the open secret, but I think if there was an open secret about Charlie Rose, it was that he was flirtatious, not that he was a predator in the same way as Harvey Weinstein. So it was certainly dissonant with the public image. I think what's interesting when you talk about the institutional commitment, at the time where I was working, you know, we covered sexism and misogyny and systems that protect them. But we didn't really have the institutional resources to report on it properly. So I was given time, I was given support to work on it. But when none of the women that I had heard about second or third hand would would speak to me or would go on the record and I really couldn't get past the initial thing, I was reassigned to something else. And subsequently, even just thinking about the fact that this kind of behavior merits the deep resources of a place like the New York Times or the Washington Post or Variety or the New Yorker or the Hollywood Reporter, I do think that there had to be a shift to say that we're going to put serious investigative resources and editing on this when the cultural moment that emerged in the wake of the new york times reporting and the new yorker and the amazon roy price reporting happened i just thought i've got to go back to this i know i'm not the only person who went back to a cold case and I had a relationship with the Washington Post. I had been writing for the Outlook section. And, you know, it's pretty unusual to have a freelancer walk up to you and say, Can I do this investigative piece about this very wealthy, well connected, well regarded person? But I immediately got the support that I needed from the Washington Post. I was paired with a reporter named Amy Britton, who I had never met before, who's an investigative reporter, and, and two editors on the investigative team. And they just said, You know, tell us what you have. And we started reporting together from there. And 17 days later, was on the front page of the Washington Post. And I do think that there had to be the readiness for these women also to process what had happened to them or what they said had happened to them. And so I don't think that the story was right before. And a few of them said, I feel guilty that I didn't talk to you back then because I I have heard of other women that this happened to, but I just wasn't ready.
0: So you hear these names, you know that this could be a big story. Where do you start? How do you start finding people, reaching out to them and getting them to respond? It's so sensitive.
3: Well, you know, I've been in Hollywood covering Hollywood for quite a while, so one of my good things that I have developed is as a network of people. And what I found doing this Story in some cases, it's even if I'm calling somebody about something else, it's worth my while to drop. I'm looking into this because suddenly there's a connection I never thought was possible. In the case of Amazon, you know, this one particular individual gave me a tremendous roadmap. I mean, he didn't just give it to me, I had to go meet with him and sit with him and, and gradually try this, try that. I mean, the woman at the center of that, one of the key people was Isa Hackett, who's the daughter of Philip K. Dick and had had this encounter with him, and it took me forever just to find out which, he kept giving me hints, because he felt guilty, honestly, about pulling her in if she didn't want to be pulled in. As it turned out, she's a tremendously courageous person. But it still took her forever. You know, with Lasseter, I cover an animation off and on back to the days of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I know animators, and even though my connections in that world are a little rusty, there are certain, like, duh, people to call, like, try this. And, you know, it was waiting to happen at that point, I think, really waiting to happen. So it depends, you know, just where it comes from and if that person is willing to say, I'll tell people, give me names to call, even if you are confident they won't talk to me, just because that helps me muddy the trail and protect my sources.
2: Mm -hmm. In some ways, I think it might have helped on Harvey that we were outsiders because... Coming new to a subject does afford you on the one hand, I didn't have anything like the long history and knowledge that Kim has about Hollywood, but you know, reporting is all about cold calling anyway, and it enables you to come to something completely fresh, and somebody is not saying, Oh, you know, I hated that story you wrote three pieces, you know, ago or whatever. Were there tactics you used or things that
0: resonated that really made people realize what a big thing this could be? Like Emily Steele, I know, went to a yoga class across the country to
3: talk to. source. <laughs> My strategy is always to just go with integrity. And I feel like that projects itself. And, you know, I had a source with an NDA in an Amazon thing. And she said, I want to go on the record. But what will happen to me should I go on the record? And I said, I can't advise you to do it. Like she was not a powerful player. And in many cases, you know, talking to Issa at Hackett as she thought about going public I would just say to her, you absolutely decide, this is your call, you know, just to make it clear that we're not trying to be another person, trying to get something out of them and mess with their heads. And I will say just quickly, everyone that has come forward, and we've had people who have written essays for us, you know, that called me and told me a story, and I'm like, can you write that? They feel such catharsis and release, and I feel like it's really important for the sources to know, potential sources, that in every case I've dealt with so far, it's just been a weight lifted.
1: It's interesting because I've spent hours on the phone or in person with the women that we wrote about for the Charlie Rose story, and you learn a little bit about why they might want to talk to you and why they might not want to talk to you. And they have good reasons in both cases. So some of the reasons that I heard was, I want to support the Washington Post because they're investigating things that I care about, or I don't want this to happen to anyone else, or I read the Harvey Weinstein story and now I realize that what happened to me is similar. We even had people who said, the two of you are young women and we want to support you because Amy and I are both in our early 30s. So you you hear all the reasons. and Then you hear all the reasons about why they don't want to go on the record, which are all valid reasons. We did not have NDAs in the Charlie Rose PBS story, but there were lots of good reasons. I'm a single mom. I'm between jobs. I'm ashamed. I should have said no. I should have fought more. I shouldn't have gone to the apartment. I have an abusive husband. These are all reasons that came up again and again with the women who decided to go on the record. And so when I think about what really made the difference in that piece, first of all, it's having names because we're bringing the full integrity of the process here. And then it's also that we spent hours talking to them like human beings not being patronizing to them, being professional, but also being responsible with the information that they told us, not pushing too hard too soon. I mean, 17 days was very fast, but at the same time, compared to the way you have to do other stories where you're like, I need to go on the record right now, Amy and I were both on the phone at like one in the morning, six in the morning, different time zones, checking in with them every day. To see, you know, how are you feeling today, even when you don't want anything? And if you are reporting on this, you're talking to people who have credible allegations of harm, right? Where you believe it enough to put it in the paper. And it's substantiated in all of these ways, and yet you're the one nagging them and telling them you need to push past their initial consent. You don't want to re-traumatize anybody, but you also need to make a good argument for why this is a really important story that will be so much stronger if your name
2: is on it and if you tell the world, this is what happened to me. I think Irene hit on a really interesting dynamic, which is that the nature of these allegations is that they felt pressured in the past. And so you don't want to pressure them as a reporter, you don't wanna even evoke that dynamic the slightest bit, but it's also your job to move forward with confidence and persistence persistence and a certain amount of proper reportorial aggression. So it's a really fine balance.
1: Right. And you have to be adversarial at times, right? You have to say like, I need to ask you tough questions. Like, why didn't you do this? Or who else did you tell? And you know, what does that person know? Do they know the whole story? So it's not the same as obviously going to Gloria Allred, where someone will hold their hand and say, I believe you no matter what, you don't have to tell me anything. So it's kind of a complex relationship in that way.
0: Sometimes when you're reporting these stories, you're knocking on a lot of doors and just not getting anywhere. And then all of a sudden, there's one source that's so helpful to you. Was there something that happened that took it from, like, this is an important story, but I don't know if I get it, to, like, oh, my God, this is happening?
3: Roy Price Amazon, I was all by myself. I didn't hear footsteps of any other publication. So I don't know. I think the key thing was that Issa felt that he was going to keep doing this to people, and she couldn't stand that. And her other side of the coin for her was, you know, I don't want my whole show, my crew and my cast to feel this weirdness being in an Amazon and that it's uncomfortable. So that was a different thing. I, I really had too much time to be tortured trying to get the Roy Price thing published. With Lassiter. I knew other people were chasing, and I started feeling like this may be really not fun to do, but you got to do it, because it's not my job to wait to be scooped.
2: For Megan and I, with the Harvey Weinstein story, it was really all about the pattern. It was about the process. You know, we wrote this in the first story. I think the first story says something like, women from all these different places over a 30-year time span... Women who don't know each other, some women were employees, some women were actresses, and yet they told such similar stories. They varied in their severity. We now know that there's a range of allegations against Weinstein that range from hotel room harassment, requests for massages on the one hand, all the way to assault and rape. So the severity varies greatly, but there's also a kind of um, numbing repetition to the stories. And it's sort of funny because when you're talking to the women, every woman's story is important and should be honored in its own way. And you want to listen to it very carefully. But on the other hand, when you're listening to it, I've never tried to count, but the number of individual kind of like Harvey incident stories I've heard, it's a really high number. And the pattern is really, really striking. And so the question we started asking in our reporting was, how come we're hearing the same story from so many people?
0: And it even seems like across stories, like the bathrobe thing. Oh my God, it's a pattern.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, when The bathroom read, in the hotel room. Yeah. yeah. And when, when I read your Charlie Rose story, Irene, I was very struck by the idea of him inviting women into private spaces where he allegedly did these inappropriate things because that was so reminiscent of the Weinstein patterns.
3: I actually completely got chills reading that because the first time I met Charlie Rose, which I don't like know him well, was sitting next to him on a couch and his hand went right there. And then fast forward he called me, Which is a pattern you present in your thing, and said, What do you think I should ask this guest on my show? And I read, not until I read your story did I think, Geez, he me like two thirds of the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, when the story came out, the other women texted us or emailed us and said, I can't believe he used that line on her, too. You know, the (laughs) line, I'm Southern, we're touchers. Not everything was quantified in the story. You know, we kind of just focused on the the most important and the most serious allegations, but there were certain commonalities. I was going to say exactly the same thing. And this was not a, a glib or a flip thing but at a certain point Amy and I took a piece of paper and we made a chart and we had each one of the behaviors that we saw ranging from leg grabbing all the way up to sexual assault allegations and we were kind of just checking off each of the women and so it was a very grim game of bingo where this came up again and again. And when we started hearing those from people who had not worked at the same time at the show or had not been referred to us by somebody else, even if they didn't know each other, some people would say, oh, you should talk to this intern or this assistant. So it was at the cold call stage, moving beyond the initial circle, that we realized that there really was a pattern and that it did involve the bathrobe and the Bellport house, for example, came up again and again.
0: So one thing that's come up is this NDA culture. Talk about that a little bit.
2: I think there are two forms of NDAs that are important here. There are the NDAs that company employees sign routinely, and Amazon and the Weinstein Company and Merrimax have all used those. And then there are confidentiality agreements that come with settlements, and that means that as I think most people now understand, if a woman has allegations, the sort of routine response is that she goes to a lawyer, and unless she wants to fully go to court, which is very hard, she often will get a settlement. The problem with those settlements is that they come with these really strict confidentiality agreements. Sometimes they're to the woman's advantage. There are women who say, I don't want anyone to know about this. You know, I want my life to proceed as usual, et cetera, et cetera. But the confidentiality agreements can also be enabling in a way because the women are silenced. And it means that the people who know the most about the problematic behaviors really can't warn other women you know, or continue to report them or go public, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the kind of two silencing elements that we've looked a lot at. And how did you get around them? It's become a pretty routine journalistic conversation to ask people to break NDAs. It's interesting to me that you didn't want that one woman to do it. I wanted her to. She she was already telling me what she knew.
3: The question was, would she put her name to it on the record? And at that point, I thought I would be putting her at tremendous risk. I don't know that the law is particularly settled. I think this is a huge policy issue that needs to be addressed, covering up wrongdoing with these NDAs. So I couldn't in good conscience say, go ahead, because... I called a couple of lawyers, it was muddy, and I thought it was young, low on the total. I thought she'd already had enough happen to her. I did not want to open her up to another round.
2: Mm -hmm. And then with the confidentiality agreements that come with settlements, you have to figure out a way how to report the settlement without putting the woman in legal jeopardy. And what I'd say is that a lot of people end up knowing about settlements. If you look at the settlements at Miramax and the Weinstein Company, it was not a case where only Harvey and the woman and like one other person knew about them. These settlements are processes. They take a lot of people to be executed. They create mystery, right? All of a sudden a woman vanishes and you know she's gone from work, and you know what happened? People end up hearing about the settlements. Now, the really interesting thing that's happening now is that women are breaking those confidentiality agreements. We've had, I wanna say two so far: Zelda Perkins and Ashley Mathau. Are Harvey Weinstein victims who have broken their settlement confidentiality agreements because they've essentially said, I have to speak out now in the public interest about what's happened to me. And as far as I know, they haven't suffered any negative consequences for that.
3: I mean, if somebody's already exposed for what they are, the risk decreases. You know, at that point, it's like, you want to sue me? Uh,
2: so. You want to get into a discovery right. process right. about right, that? Right. It's only right. as good as the
1: enforcement process. Right, and once many people have broken it without repercussions, it's easier. So,
0: talk about getting people Mm -hmm. on the record, the importance of it, could you have even published if you hadn't had people on the record? How do you move a source into that direction and, and get them to put their name on something that will follow them on Google everywhere they go to every future employer, how does that work?
1: In the case of our story, it was really important for us to get people on the record. The feeling is somebody who is such a public figure, works for three major media companies, has relationships with Bloomberg, CBS, and and PBS, you know, you really want this story to be absolutely airtight, nail down every word and all the names that you can. So there were a few dynamics. One dynamic was a safety in numbers. Nobody wants to be the first person. So we were really lucky, Amy and I, that we were working with the same team of investigative editors who had just published the story on Roy Moore. And that had three women on the record. So we were able to draw on their advice and their resources on the best way to do this and also to point our sources to the way that the Roy Moore story had been done, which was with great sensitivity. So part of it was at the beginning of the conversation saying to them, there won't be any surprises. You're not going to pick up The Washington Post tomorrow and see your story. This is a long-term thing. I'm not going to rush you, but that is something I'm going to be asking you. That was sort of step one, is to make it really clear, to be really transparent about the process, that, you know, this is not a gotcha game. This is not, I need to push publish right this minute. Let's talk about what we can do here. And then nobody wants to be the first, but you also can't coordinate between them. You have to keep the integrity of the process very airtight. And so at a certain point, what we did was we got permission from some of the women to share their stories with other sources without their names or with their names depending on what their preference was. And so I just we just both started reading portions of the transcripts, again, with the women's permission of an off record conversation to the other women. The first person to go on the record was a person who realized that someone had said she was violently assaulted after she had worked there, after she had been an assistant to Charlie Rose. And so she just said, if this is gonna make a big difference for your story, And again, people have all kinds of good reasons not to put their name on this kind of story. But that was ultimately what did it. And there was another woman who we describe in the story. She feels like what happened to her wasn't very serious. But she said, if my name being in this will help the other women feel less alone, then I will go on the record. Then we had two. Then we had three. This was a big
3: problem for me with the Amazon story because everyone who was a key source either worked at Amazon or had their business life depended on a a deal with Amazon. And I have to say, I have somewhat unorthodox feelings because I had nobody on the record, but five people agreed that if he were to sue us, they would identify themselves and testify truthfully. They agreed in writing. And Amazon had acknowledged that he had been investigated. So I felt like that should get us into the end zone. That didn't convince every editor. It ultimately kind of worked with a little, little bit of a comment from Issa Hackett and then she finally went all the way on the record. But I think that we don't name rape victims. I feel like we should be able to break these stories. NPR, the NPR story was broken with nobody on the record because NPR did acknowledge the problem. So I think we have to think maybe not so much like you must go on the record, you're a victim. But I don't find the logic of that. I feel like we should find other ways if people aren't willing or can't. I don't think we should ask people to commit professional suicide to do a story. The pressure on you all, you're dealing with these powerful people who have so much
0: money and resources. I think Ronan Farrow described it as like a Hogwarts moment with Harvey Weinstein's lawyers where like letters of like threats were coming in from all of crevices of his house, windows and chimneys. Um, so what was the pressure like on you all and how did you deal with it?
2: Well, the world has since learned that we, and more importantly, our sources faced significant intimidation in reporting the Harvey story. I don't know if I was more horrified or amused to learn about, like, the attempts that had been made to dupe me. I mean, I knew strange things were going on, but more became clear afterwards and that a dossier was prepared on me. But actually, in real time, that was not the pressure I faced. What Megan and I really felt over the summer was the pressure not to let this story slip away. It scared us that so many great journalists hadn't been able to land it. And once we understood the material that we were dealing with, the sense of obligation that we felt as journalists and as human beings. So much has happened since then. But remember that when we were doing this story over the summer, very few people knew about it. And I was terrified by the idea of of what it would mean to fail. And so I think that was the greatest pressure that I faced.
0: This has created hopefully much more than a movement. It certainly feels like we're at a moment in time where things are changing and people are able to come forward and feel empowered to do so. Do you think that, are we just at the beginning of this? Is actual change happening? Is it gonna be a moment that passes and things will continue the way that they have been? Where do you think we are in this process?
1: I mean, I think we are in an amazing moment of reporting. And it feels like reporting is such a good way to talk about this particular kind of abuse of power. Let's put it this way Uh, sexual harassment is not a crime in the workplace, right? It's a violation of someone's civil rights. The reason we have sexual harassment laws, they fall under equal opportunity laws. So they have to do with people's workplace behavior and, and professional behavior. And so I think that especially when it comes to sexual assault even, which is under the criminal law. The criminal justice system is not necessarily the best way for us to understand this as a social problem. Gossip, where a lot of this lived before, also I think ill serves all of the people involved in it. Investigative reporting, I think, can really help us understand just how endemic of a problem it is. It's not specific to any particular industry. So I'm really encouraged by reporting organizations who are putting amazing people like the women on this stage On this story, so that we can keep understanding all the nuances and all the complexity. Because one of the women on the record in our story, she felt like, you know, oh, I sent him emails after the fact that were very sycophantic. Like, this completely disqualifies my story. And I could say to her, you know, Asia Argento in the New Yorker story, she had a consensual relationship with Harvey after, and people understand her to be a victim. So this is a really complicated story. And I think that the reporting process, in particular, shedding light on, all of the complex ways that this plays out in people's lives is something really important
3: for me, I would just say I knew there was sexual harassment in Hollywood before. I didn't realize how pervasive it really was. And when I look at institutions, studios, certain studios, the agencies, what I realize is the reason that women don't do better in terms of their representation in the workforce, in executive suites, in all the jobs in Hollywood, is because these guys have had a culture in many of these places that is an absolute free-for-all, and they don't want women spoiling it. And that is the real reason why women are so dramatically under represented year after year in what is supposed to be a progressive world. I mean, I was listening last night to a story about a studio chairman and the outrageous conduct. He doesn't want that spoiled by a woman witnessing that. The only change comes when women are better represented and that club is broken up.
2: I just think that the reason why what's happening now is so important is that we're getting this horrifyingly realistic view into what really happens. And I think all of us are shocked and saddened and riveted and staggered by what turns out to be the differential between appearance and reality. I mean, if we want to take it to the present moment and go back to yesterday and talk about collectively learning about the Matt Lauer allegations Part of what is really disturbing about those allegations is the difference between what was on the surface, right, of being this kind of genial morning TV host, and then reading these stories in Variety and The Times and other publications about what he allegedly did to women behind closed doors. And so I think as long as you had that gap between appearance and then women's private experiences... Society can't begin to address those problems if we don't know about them, right? And so I hope that, you know, as Irene said, it's kind of a reporting moment when we sort of need to reboot and learn the truth about what's actually happening, and then hopefully we can move on.
0: Great. Well, thank you all for your tremendous work. Uh, The world is better for it. And thank you. Keep it up. Thank Thank you. Thanks for listening to Success, How I Did It. If you like success, help us spread it. Tell a friend who you think might like the show or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to success in a lot of places, including Apple, Google Play, Radio Public and Stitcher. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always email us at audio at business I'm Alison Chantel. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Success How I Did It.
2: Look around. You can find cars like these on Trader.